Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Game of Thrones. I'm Betty Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson, and this is usually where... Richard Lawson pops in and says hello, but Richard has jaunted off to Cannes, leaving us all alone with the hot takes. But I have the best companion for these final two episodes of Game of Thrones. It is Katie Rich. Hello, Katie Rich. Hello. And uh, if you follow Richard on Instagram, you've seen a picture he posted from Cannes that looked very much like King's Landing. So mm. it's it's like he's thinking of us. I'm sure. Sun tanning. King's Landing pre-dragon, that is. <laughs> Sun tanning, baking, and dragon fire. It's basically the same. Um, <laughs> That's what Europe is, I think. <laughs> yeah. So Katie and I are, are well versed with, uh, in the realm of podcasting with each other, but we've never done one of these episodes of still watching together. So I'm really excited to have Katie no, here. This is so excited. Although I, I feel like I should say from the start, I'm a, I'm a known Game of Thrones dummy who has never read <laughs> the books and sometimes forgets key plot points from the show. So I'll try not to embarrass myself. That's absolutely not true, Katie. Like, basically co-writes all of my content on Sunday nights. But, <laughs> but, but um, I also ask you things like, wait, who is that? <laughs> like, all the time. <laughs> wait, Littlefinger died is my favorite. That's a that's a classic Katie Rich. Anyway, we are here to talk about Season 8, Episode 5, The Bells, which is written by D.B. Weiss and David Benioff and directed by Miguel Sapochnik. Um, this is the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. We're in the end game now. This is a very divisive. He thought last week was a divisive episode. This is an even more divisive episode. Um, so you've probably heard a lot of hot takes like flying fast and furious. Katie and I are going to do a classic still watching, uh, giving out of awards before we dive into those hot takes. So we are going to run down a few of the things that we like to sort of hand out and say about the episode, starting with our like, hardcore MVP 
of the episode. Katie Rich, who is your MVP of this episode of The Bells? I mean, I think it's a, it's a controversial pick, but like, if there's someone who you're going to be the most afraid of, it's, it's Drogon. Like, Drogon did a lot of things in this episode, and he is the person who I would most not like to run into in an alley. So I think he's got to be the winner. Is that your traditional definition of MVP? Like, I don't know. That? I honestly was thinking of it as VIP. But I don't know. Like he was the biggest mover and shaker. Yeah. In the episode. I mean, I guess Daenerys is because she's the one controlling the fire. But like, I don't know. I, li- I like giving it a shot. We got one dragon left, but he gets the- he gets a job done. He he got many jobs done <laughs> um, this week. Um, to go hand in hand with that, I'm going to give the MVP award to uh, Amelia Clark who say what you will about what is going on in Daenerys with Daenerys inside her mind in you want to call it a sudden heel turn you want to call it a paid off long you know predicted uh character evolution whatever you want to call it Amelia Clark had to do a lot of work in realms that she hasn't worked in before and i'm thinking like specifically of that shot where you know the bells the titular bells are going and it's a silent shot. She's all alone. And I was watching the making of the episode last night. And she's not just all alone without a line of dialogue. She's all alone without a line of dialogue on the back of a hydraulic rig surrounded by green screen. Yeah. She gives this just really incredible performance where I'm like watching it. And I rewatched that scene because I was trying to figure out why Daenerys snapped there. But like, Me I was like, too. I was like, I might not understand why she's snapping here, but I fully feel this snap. It doesn't feel like unbelievable because the emotional work is there. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I was comparing it to the shot of her at the, with the Sandy last week where you kind of watch this fury develop on her face. And they really emphasized that in the previously on that aired before the episode. And you see her face just turned to stone. And like, yeah. that's an impressive Amelia Clark performance too. And when the snap comes, even though, as you were saying, her emotions feel really complicated. It's so different. It's a completely different reading that she's giving us, which I think says a lot about the work that Amelia Clark's doing. And we'll get into, uh, you know, I, I was basically sort of gobbling up every interview I could find to try to parse the moment. And I think I've, I've figured out some things since last we spoke, Katie Rich. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see if that uh, lands with audiences. Um, all right. So let us then go to our sneaky MVP or stealth MVP. Of the episode, there's someone a little under the radar that we like to give a shout out to. Katie, who do you have on your list here? Uh, I don't, I should have looked up the actress's name, but I don't even know how, but the woman who with short hair, who is kind of a red shirt running around in King's Landing, who you see with her daughter, like trying to get into the red keep and they can't make it. Uh, and then later Aria tries to protect them. I just thought she was doing a lot with this performance with, I don't even know if she had any lines and I was kind of, you know, waiting like, oh, she's a goner. Um, but I thought she did interesting things with that. And then, you know, the impact that she and her daughter had on Aria was pretty powerful as well. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of, um, you know, Miguel Sapochnik, who directed this episode, also directed Hard Home, which is one of my favorite episodes of Game of Thrones. And in that episode, there's this character named Carsey, who is, you know, just this wildling woman with a couple kids. And you meet her basically in the middle of the episode. Right. And she, and well, she right. dies before the episode's over. And you're so invested in her character. Um, and so like to a slightly lesser degree, but a similar, a similar effect. I think that that's like the role she's serving here, right? Is like, this is a woman and her children trying to get to safety. That is just inherently, uh, sympathetic. And as you, as you say in the notes here, like it gives, it gives stakes. It gives grounded stakes to this, um, episode to this performance yeah and it's not just someone who you know is going to be an innocent who gets roasted like it doesn't feel as uh sadistic as sometimes these things can feel yeah absolutely and i i think that um i think one of the ways in which these last couple seasons have uh faltered a little is not showing us the on the ground of what's going on in king's london there's so much discussion of the realm and they forgot to do some of the things that they have done in seasons past, which is just like show us the man on the street in King's Landing. Mm-hmm. You forget how many freaking people live in Westeros. Yeah. And so then this episode just, just like doubles down to make up for lost time. And, and in the, you know, in the making of documentary, basically, I think it was Dan Weiss said, you know, we wanted to, you, you like don't see Daenerys for the back 30 of the episode, basically. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we wanted to stay on the ground and focus on these people and what it would be like to have like hellfire rain on you from above. And well, we can debate you know, whether or not showing Daenerys is a good idea, but I did like what we saw from the ground. I agree. But I, but I kind of wish, 
Um, you know, it all feels like there's not enough time for anything anymore, but I kind of wish we could have gotten more of that going through. Like, I think they did a similar thing in the Battle of Winterfell where they like introduced this little soup girl and you're like, Oh, soup girl, I care if you make it out of Battle of Winterfell, but it still just feels like these sort of one off things. Whereas I think before they did a slightly better job of the, the lower class people, the people who are really affected by the power players in, uh, Westeros, you know, like characters yeah. like Roz and the brothel or so, you know, like that there are just like people around who are, who are not kings and queens who still matter. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, best line reading. This is where I usually make Richard do an impression, but I'm not going to make you do that, Katie, unless you oh, want no. to. Oh, well, no. I mean, yes, please. I'm not, I'm not the theater nerd <laughs> that you guys are. Um, so what, what is your, what is your best? Wait, did you line? do your self VIP? Oh, oh, I forgot to. Thank you. Um, actually, my self VIP, uh, was originally going to be director Miguel Sapochnik, but I don't know that that's stealth enough. And the stealth VIP, I think for this episode is, is Deb Riley, who is the production designer, mm-hmm. because they basically had to build Dubrovnik for this, right? Like they usually shot, um, all the King's Landing stuff in Croatia. And there's a couple reasons why they weren't there this year. One is like, you know, privacy, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't protect yourself from drones. But the other is the fact that they were, whatever sets they had for King's Landing, they were going to have to be able to blow up. Yeah. And so they had to meticulously recreate the back alley streets of Dubrovnik and watching, um, like I wasn't super impressed with the gates of King's Landing on that like weird wasteland that has never been a part of the King's Landing like architecture infrastructure like that. Yeah, didn't that just felt me. like weird space. Yeah, you know, useful blank space to stage an army. Right, but the crush on the streets, all the crowd stuff on the streets to go with you know what you were saying, I think that did look convincing. And um, you know, yeah, and I went to I went to Dubrovnik a couple years ago. I think right around the time they stopped filming there, and it really did feel like the city like the geography felt right like obviously king's landing has been like cgi cgi augmented from the beginning but like like there were shots where i was like oh that looks like dubrovnik and it it felt real even though they recreated the whole thing yeah so you know the and and they were talking about how they not only had to like build all these buildings which they did um but also work within the building of the building they then also had to figure out how to make it look beautiful when destroyed. You know, it's not, yeah. so it's not just a matter of like, let's build a set and then let's blow it up. You have to in baked into the construction of the set in the first place. You have to figure out, okay, when we blow it out, this is what the rubble's going to look like, you know, and, and, um, Deb was talking about how, uh, you know, and it's funny because like Deb, uh, we interviewed Deb for this podcast a couple weeks ago and she was great and it was fascinating because I know nothing about production design. And, um, I asked her, I was like, I heard that there's like a, you know, a new location we've never seen before. And she was like, she couldn't say what it was. She was like, it's my hope that you won't even notice. And what she was talking about was this like fake Dubrovnik that they built basically. Ah. Um, you know, she's like, if we've done our job well, you won't even notice that there is a new set yeah. on season yeah. eight. So, um, yeah, Wait, I, I want, I had a, can I get a, do a bonus still? <laughs> still yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just thinking about Paula Fairfield because, uh, you know, she was the guest last week and mm-hmm. the creaking sounds as the red keep is falling apart as you're kind of watching Cersei run away. It, uh, yeah. a reminded me of Titanic, my beloved Titanic and like the sound of the building <laughs> collapsing. And I just thought it was so effective and spooky. And the score in this episode was great, but I really love just that, that audible collapsing that was happening in this episode. Yeah. Also, I mean, so Paula does like most of the dragon stuff. So I don't think Fine. she did her, her team, whoever. No, no, no. <laughs> I was, I didn't mean to be like, well, actually you, but I wanted to add another thing to that, which was, um, the Jamie Lannister wheezing. And I don't know if that was just all Nick Lycoster Waldo, like in a sound booth somewhere making wheezing noises, but I feel like I could, I could hear his lungs leaking, um, for, <laughs> for the end of the episode. So, um, there you go. Um, all right. Uh, let, hit me with your best line or most memorable line reading from the episode. Okay. So m- mine was, uh, basically just because this is what I would be saying in the situation, which was Cersei saying to Jamie, I don't like this. I don't like this because, <laughs> and were I in the situation, I don't think I would have caused this destruction, but which yeah. she definitely did, but her kind of you know, development into just a scared person. Um, I thought it was great acting from her and I, it, she really sold that fear. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, uh, it's interesting because I, Watching them film that, you know, and some of the behind the scenes stuff, it seems like some of it a little bit at least is improvised. It's just Lena, Heidi, and Nicola Coswaldo being like, yeah, we know how to play these characters. Don't worry. Yeah. Get out of our way. <laughs> <laughs> we can do this. Um, 
I was I was uh, surprisingly. A lot of people have problems with with this uh, the storyline and the way it concluded, and we can talk about that. But um, I was just surprisingly excited to see the two of them back together because yeah. um, I just they they work so well together. Um, yeah, and she just sells that moment of she's been keeping up this brave front, like you know, yeah. to a preposterous degree, and then she sees him and totally falls apart. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay, so I'm going to quote our dearly departed friend uh, Lord Varys who, you know, was has always been good at, at drawing out some delicious lines. And he goes, I hope I deserve this. Truly, I do. I hope I'm wrong. Goodbye, old friend. Yeah, um, good. was good. good. <laughs> I mean, Varys, he goes out basically with an I told you so in advance. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty solid. So, you know, RIP Lord Varys, one of the most uh, verbal people in the in the Seven Kingdoms. We will miss you and your line readings. <sighs> what are all of his little spies going to do now? Oh, his little birds. He was so nice. Like, that was such an interesting shot with that little bird, Martha, I guess her name was, where he was like, he held out his hand to her. Mm-hmm. The camera just like focuses on his hand as he's just sort of like, you know, like, what did I tell you? Like, you know, it's just like, I don't know. It was, it was a good goodbye for that character. Cometh Hill gave a... I love, you know, I love a salty exit interview, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and Conleth Hill, who plays Varys, gave a fairly salty one to Entertainment Weekly, uh, where he was talking about not this episode, because I think he quite liked maybe like his last two episodes on the show. But I think for a couple seasons, he felt fairly sidelined out of what was going on. And I think that's true of like a lot of the supporting characters as you drill down on like John and Daenerys scenes or whatever sure. it is, you know, like what does Lord Varys have to do but a line here or there? Or when you, I mean, basically, essentially when you take him out of King's Landing, ever since he got taken out of King's Landing in season four, it's just sort of like, what is there for Varys to do? Um and he, you know, he did his, his various machinations. Um, but, uh, now the time for, like, that's the last political, I guess, unless you count Tyrion or Sansa, that's yeah. the last real political maneuver or, uh, Littlefinger and Varys are dead now. So. Yeah. Okay. I guess Sansa is, uh, gonna keep the, keep it alive. Chaos, chaos time in the realm. All right. Best dressed of the episode, uh, Katie hit me with that good take. I mean, this was hard. Like, I really didn't feel like I was paying attention to what anybody was wearing. Like, Cersei's got her, like, robes. This was not her best look. So, but I do think Daenerys' battle armor that's, like, all black and really hardcore, I feel like that's new. And, again, like, in that shot of Amelia Clark, like, making her decision, uh, it, it stood out to me what she was wearing there. Yeah, something that uh, Michelle Clapton has said, who's the costume designer on the show, is that she uses color to, um, you know, sort of betray moods and so if you watch where Daenerys is wearing white and where she's wearing red and where she's wearing black in this season especially um you know dictates sort of whether she's being good Daenerys or fire and blood Daenerys mm-hmm. and it's not it's not just like the white is for the winter up north because she had like a like a sort of red version and and gray versions of those coats up north too so um i don't know it's kind of fascinating and she also um Michelle Clapton has also said that she, as soon as Daenerys arrived in Westeros, so season uh, seven, she started dressing her a bit more like her brother Viserys from season one. So if you look, you'll see some like similarities to Viserys wore a lot of black and red. And um, I think that's, it's not the only parallel to Viserys in this episode, but it's an intriguing one. So she saw the heel turn coming ages ago. Oh, I'm sure they told Michelle. They're like, Michelle, <laughs> break out in some darkness. <laughs> break out the evil clothes. Here we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. My best dressed is going to go to uh, a look that you are the one who pointed out to me, Katie, which is um, the hound with the hood up as he's stalking through. Oh, uh, yeah. King's Landing with Arya. That's a that's a very good look that we've never seen before in the hound. So yeah, him and Jamie both stalking around in hoods. Yeah, but then Jamie, like, I guess Jamie was trying to get people's attention, but there's that shot where he's just, like, sticking his gold hand up oh, out of the crowd. Oh, definitely. He's trying to be, right. like, I'm Jamie Lannister. I'm Jamie. Right yeah, e- exactly. But at first I was like, bud, what? this looks so awkward. Then the I was like, oh. Lannister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. And then the last thing we do, this is a tough one for this episode, but usually we, we ship 
two people or people and an inanimate object or whatever it might be. Uh, so Katie, what, what, what romance have you found to cling to in this episode? I just want Arya and that horse to get out of Dodge and keep going. And I, you suggested that she wouldn't go back to Winterfell. And that actually hadn't occurred to me until I read your post. And wh- wherever Arya winds up, I hope that horse takes her far, far away from all of this vengeance. Yeah, I think she's just done with death and with violence. A lot of people have wondered if she was, you know, because there's that whole like, what does the white horse mean? Pale horse, pale rider from the Bible, death. I am become death, you know, like sort of thing for Arya. But I think it's complete opposite. And everything I've seen in interviews has indicated that Arya's only mission and only thought at that point is to get the sh- like hell out of town. Mm-hmm. She's trying to leave. She's not trying to like maneuver herself so she can kill Daenerys. I don't think, I don't think that's the lesson of this episode. The lesson of this episode is the hound saying, what if you don't have death on your mind? And then yeah. you won't become like me. And, you know, so. Um, all right. So my ship, <laughs> which has angered a lot of people is the Jamie and Cersei toxic love forever. Of it's not course. like, it's not like I'm really rooting for them. I'm just like, it makes sense to me. And I think it hits emotionally like very well in this episode. Um, I might argue actually that what gets in the way of this is actually some of the other stuff. Like why did Jamie Lannister go North at all? Uh, you know, I, I like that story. I like the idea of someone trying to become a better man and then like failing and reverting to old ways. But there's also like, some weird conflicting behind the scenes interviews where they talk about like, Oh, Jamie Lannister finally knows who he is. And he's like, you know, he's not happy about it, but he's okay with it. And I'm like, I don't know that that's my take of Jamie. I feel like he's two people. I think he's both like Jamie and Winterfell and Jamie and King's Landing. And it's just like sort of one feels more comfortable. One's well worn to him and the other, you know, yeah, isn't it that like he saw a greater threat coming. So he had, so he left Cersei, but then the minute he realized she was in danger, he had to go back to her. Like he, he also thought he was becoming Winterfell Jamie and then realized that he could. Yeah, exactly. So, think, you know, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, I guess we can talk about Jamie more now that the story, his story is completed. I know he's your eternal problematic fave, but <laughs> it feels like all of the beats of this make sense. We just needed more time for it. Like it just had to happen. The Jamie and Brand Brand thing had to happen in the span of an episode and then he had to leave her and it felt rushed, but it does feel real. Yeah, I agree with that. Let us talk more in depth about the episode uh, right after this break from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. So we, as promised, we are going to talk about some of these threads. I mean, overall, I think, Katie, you and I were a little um, more positive on this episode than the general consensus seems to be. Um, I have, yeah. I have a, like, huge wells of sympathy for people who are really frustrated with the Daenerys, what they see as like an out of nowhere Daenerys turn. I agree that I think the show did not do a great job of laying track here. And I wrote a piece uh, that went up on VF last night about sort of how the show has prized shock uh, over, over sort of like well-earned surprise. I know there's just a difference between what George R. R. Martin does to lay a surprise twist in the narrative and what 
the show writers have done in the last few seasons. They feel like out of nowhere, Brutal Shock feels like more up their alley than say like the Obert Martell thing, which just feels like inevitable when you're watching it, you know? Yeah. Um, but that being said, like there's a number of other things that worked really, really well for me in this episode. Let's start with my problematic fave, Jamie Lannister mm-hmm. and Cersei Lannister. People, I think people, I think are more upset because they really wanted Cersei to have a like brutal, awful death. And that has always actually sat like not very comfortably with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, we were talking about it. We, uh, you know, some TV, TV critic folks were talking about it on Twitter over the weekend. It was sort of like, rolling it like yes Cersei is a bad person yes it's fine that she died this she made her bed that's absolutely right I wasn't like necessarily rooting for her to like rule the seven kingdoms I'm not excusing any of the horrible things she's done that being said um someone pointed out that uh, we didn't roll into the Breaking Bad finale being like can't wait for Walter White to get like b- brutally decimated by some you know what I mean like mm-hmm. Walter, Walter even though White- his right his death did feel inevitable Absolutely inevitable and right, yeah. you know, but it wasn't like, you know, I hope someone tortures him, you know, like something like that. And that that was the whole Cersei thing is like people felt it felt like people were just out for blood in a way that both felt a little gendered, but also just like, I don't know, I, I, I have I have conflicted feelings about even fictional villains being brutalized um, on screen. Did you have any like Cersei death wishes or how were you feeling? Really into the um, I felt like. This was the right way. I wanted one more scene for Lena Headey. Like, I think we've talked about how we felt like this should be her Emmy year. And I wonder if the way that this episode played out kind of deprived her of the one big thing. Like, you know, her smirk when executing Miss Sandy last week was pretty powerful, but it kind of felt like it was leading up to some last big thing for her. But this episode just didn't quite have time for it. Um, But I'm with you that, like, she's such a complicated character that I didn't want to see her, like, have her head put on a pike and... Ideally, these new rulers are the people who wouldn't do that, although Daenerys has kind of proven that she's willing to be pretty brutal. Um, it's just more interesting if she's a more complicated character. And also, she's been a loser for, like, so long. Like, her position, and you, you would remember this better than me, like, her position has just been so obviously weak since the minute Daenerys got to Westeros that, like, it wouldn't, like, drawing out her death wouldn't have accomplished anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's just not the kind of violence that I think is rewarding to watch. I mean, maybe like your mileage may vary. Maybe violence isn't rewarding to watch in any uh, way, shape or form. But I think that like, once again, to bring it back to Oberyn Martell or even the red wedding, like that's a kind of brutality that makes sense to me, not just because they're like heroes being brutalized, but it's just sort of like it, it you're just soaking in the tragedy of it. And I think this gives us like tragic, plenty of tragedy to soak in, in this episode with Cersei and Jamie. Um, our boss or even co- like a, a brutal death that like isn't tragic, but like is satisfying is Kyburn. Like Kyburn getting his head bashed in was like surprising and weird, but like fine. Yeah. Yeah. He just got meloned and it was fine. Or like whatever happened to the mountain, that's fine. I don't know. It's like they've worked really hard to make Cersei a complicated villain in like, you know, we have the that whole walk of shame sequence mm-hmm. that puts us directly inside of her head or a lot of, you know, they, they, they made her much more sympathetic than she is in the books. There's a lot of stuff in the show about, um, you know, the way she was raised, the way her father treated all of his children, you know, the way they were all warped by their upbringing. Like that's interesting and compelling and human stuff. And so I, I, I liked this very human ending for her. It wasn't like a happy ending, but it was like one she deserved. And something else that I wrote about on VF was this, the fact that it was this twist on this old book prophecy, the Valencar prophecy. I love a misinterpreted prophecy. There's nothing I love more <laughs> in literature. And you've seen this coming for a long time. Um, well, I would say it's not just me. I mean, like certainly what, what, Book readers, the prophecy as it lays out in the book is that Cersei would be choked to death by the little brother, uh, is, is the, is the translation of the word Valencar. And so Cersei interprets that as Tyrion and then book readers thinking they're smarter than, you know, they're like, aha, we won't be fooled. It's Jamie who's like technically younger than her by a few seconds, you know? So they were like, okay, Jamie's going to kill her. He's definitely going to kill her. And then I like, not just me, but like some people are like, okay, but like, is Jamie choking Cersei really something we want to see? So I was actually, I think, born by my like weird favoritism of Jamie was rooting for something else. And so this idea that like he wraps his hands around her neck, not to choke her, but to like com- comfort and soothe her. 
and that yeah. they choke and die, but not because he has like killed her, um, is, is what I wanted. That's exactly what I wanted. And people are mad and I'm satisfied. So although I'm is sorry. the car theory, is it, is that prophecy in the show at all? No, um, it's not. And so I don't know. Um, they cut it. Like they had a prophecy scene, uh, in season five with some other things for Cersei and they cut the Valencar thing. So I was like, they might not do it all at all. Interesting. You know? And so, so the- I mean, this death could just be, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter because like the prophecy is known to book readers, but like it could just be a death for Cersei and Jamie and have nothing to do with the prophecy. It could. I think the way they shot it, like the prophecy says, once you've drowned in your tears and like Lena Katie is doing all this like enormous amount of crying. Yes. And then, you know, the way that Nikolai Costa Waldo as Jamie puts his hands on her neck is not entirely natural. It's pretty natural, but not entirely natural. And I, I do think it's supposed to be a nod to that. It's sure. like, let's take this thing and twist it. But if you don't know about the prophecy, you're just sort of like, okay, that's how Jamie and Cersei died. Totally. You know? Yeah. Like me yeah. not knowing and not having read the books, like you could watch that and be like, yeah, they just wanted to die together. Cause it, yeah. it, didn't he say at some point he wanted to die in the arms of the woman he loves? Yes. That's something he said in season five. So, you know, and oh. then, and then Lady Elena last season was like, you and Cersei will sort of like be the death of each other. And in the book, Cersei is always like, we, we came into the world together. We'll go out of the world together. So, you know, it's like, it feels, fairly inevitable um weren't you kind of rooting for more of an like them taking more action when it came to their deaths though like not necessarily trying to kill each other but like not just being like crushed by rubble it kind of felt like they would like have a more active role in this Cersei doesn't really do anything in this episode other than like watch her city get destroyed yeah well actually okay well okay there's definitely room for me to have criticism of this my criticism of this is the Cersei pregnancy plot which I still don't understand why this is a thing and and my fear is that it only exists to further humanize Cersei which is not something that I felt like I needed for her but Mm -hmm. this idea that like a pregnant woman is more sympathetic than a not pregnant woman this idea that like because she's pregnant Tyrion believes she might be deceiving him Um, and then at the end she's like I want to live I want her baby to live like to make her like more somewhat vulnerable seeming I don't like any of that there were some rumors at the end of last season that and it was actually in a, in a version of the script that she was going to miscarry at the end of last season. Hmm. And so when she did not do that, um, as it was written in one of the scripts, then I was like, okay, so what's the reason for keeping the baby? And I still cannot give you a good answer to that. I mean, it, I guess the idea is that like, like you were saying, like Tyrion believed her more because he keeps saying over and over again, I think he said in this episode, like she has a re- she has something to live for now. Yeah. And like the, the standard line being that everything terrible Cersei has done has been for her children. So it's not just her, like if, you know, if she had no kids in the future, like she might have a death wish and just be fine with King's Landing burning to the ground. But with this idea that she can hold on to her rule and have a, have a, you know, true born king yeah. son, um, like that might, just motivate her more than just to take everyone down with her. And because of all of that, I just like, I agree with that, but it, it feel, it felt messy to me for her to be like, I want our, our child to live. Like it it felt, it felt like there's a lot of sticky gendered stuff in this. And and that felt like part of it. Um, And then the other thing, I mean, in my, in my fan fiction version of this ending, here's what's happened. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jamie gets mortally wounded. And, uh, which he did. And he encounters her as the city's crumbling. And she could leave. She could still leave. Mm-hmm. And she stays with him and they die ah. together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's in an that choice. way, yeah. And then that way he causes her death, but does not kill her. And that, mm-hmm. so that was sort of what I was hoping it would go towards. And instead it was just sort of like, we're trapped. Oh, well, here we go. Yeah. Which I still think was beautifully acted. So I'm not mad about it. Yeah. All and right. like, you know, he's telling her to look at him and like make the choice to like be together as they die, as opposed to just like scrambling till the end. But I won't disagree with you that Lena Katie deserved, um, like much more to do. I think, I think, uh, the more this season shakes out, the more I understand that they really thought of these last 13 episodes as like one long season. Mm-hmm. You see so many things set up up in season seven that are paid off directly in season eight that I feel like they had to have written a lot of this stuff all together. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, you know, Cersei has much more to do in the front half of this final 13 episode season, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. I don't know. Um, all right. Uh, let us talk about another thing that I think you and I liked, which is the Arya stuff. Um, Katie, what did you, what did you like about Arya's? Because Arya is another weird one where like she comes to King's Landing 
She doesn't really do anything, though she does make an active choice, and then she leaves. That's Arya's journey yeah. through King's Landing. So what, what did you the, like about it? The active choice is what the clear difference is. Like, first of all, like, this payoff to this Arya and the Hound relationship that, like, I really liked how just openly affectionate it became in this episode, at least, you know, maybe in the episode before, where, like, they've had such a complicated thing. Like, they don't necessarily like each other, but they recognize the value of their shared history. And then as they get in there, like the hound making a choice and saying he's done for, like, I think we all knew that the hound was probably not going to survive to see whatever happens at the end of the series. Um, but knowing that Arya could be different and like seeing that she's kind of modeled herself off of him in some ways, but she has the ability not to, and that she made the choice not to. And I think like with everyone, like we could have seen a little bit more of this developing and like her going from like murder robot to not murder robot is kind of a big transition from her. But then, you know, she uses her skills and her heroism to try to save people in the streets of King's Landing, which does feel extremely uh in character for her. And the way that it cross cuts the hound fighting the mountain with Arya kind of getting slammed into the streets was just beautiful. Like there's such elegant yes. battle filmmaking, which and I think the Battle of Winterfell had some strengths to it. But like, man, was I glad this was in daylight. Like it just made such a huge difference of how um powerful this stuff could be. Um And then you just seeing Arya kind of tattered at the end of it and seeing an escape and taking it. Um It, it feels like the right arc for her. And it, and it feels like not like she's turning into a different person, but it is payoff to all these seasons of watching her seek vengeance and then learning that that isn't actually going to solve anything. Yeah. It's funny because like our, um, our boss, Mike Hogan in his recap, a lot of which I agreed with, he was like, this felt like a sort of destruction of Arya's character arc. And I'm like, I feel like it's the right conclusion. Like, did we want her on a murder path for the rest of her life? Is that what we wanted her arc to be? Like the arc was, towards lack of humanity and like uh, being at Winterfell chipped away at that a little bit for her, like reinserted some humanity into her life. But this was like a huge, like in like flooding in of humanity. And like mm-hmm. it, it did, it did wonders for Maisie Williams who like I loved up through season four. And then basically ever since Arya like left Westeros, went to Braavos and, and trained to be a murder robot, as you put it, there was this sort of flat affect that came with that performance that was like necessary for Arya to present uh, like stripped out humanity, but it it limited, I think, what Maisie Williams could do. And I think in this episode, we saw some of the best stuff from her that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, like the way she looks at the hound when he's telling her, like, don't be like me is so vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and, and, and like you're saying, like something we haven't seen from Arya in a long time. And like, sometimes you can see the strings of the plot. Like when you think about how quickly pieces were shuffled around on the board in this episode, it's like, okay, everyone up to Winterfell. Okay. Some people back down to King's Landing, you know what I mean? And so like, what purpose do they serve? So Jamie is down there to be with Cersei at the end. Okay. That, that makes sense. And the Hound is down there so that they can do this like clue game bowl. And then Arya is down there. It feels like to me, and they've said sort of similar things in behind the scenes interviews that like, to give us a perspective on the street that we were enormously sympathetic to. Yeah. Um, you know, so Arya is our man on the streets in, in, um, King's Landing. And so, and, and you talk about the thing that worked so well for me, cause I actually, the, the clash between the Hound and the Mountain, which is a long gestating fan theory called a uh, Clue Game Bowl, which, which the writers are aware of because they called it Clue Game Bowl, which is a fan, theory name they called it that in the behind the scenes interviews so like i just want to say when when weiss and benioff say they don't listen to fans they do um <laughs> but <laughs> Man, that's what i'm aware of having not read anything <laughs> it's true it's true but anyway so they were like everyone wanted this we wanted this we wanted this clue game bowl i didn't care at all about clue game bowl and in fact katie read a pre-write for me where i was just sort of like you know because it seemed like this is where it was going and i was like i don't like this for the hound then i watched it and the way it cut between the hound and aria i loved which was director miguel sapachnik's choice the original idea was to have like a 12 minute i think oneer on aria as she went through the city and he decided to chop it up and intercut it with the hound fight which is tremendously effective yeah and all of a sudden it links these two stories in an even more concrete and visceral way in and so then i was like katie i'm changing my take (laughs) 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 i'm into click game ball now (laughs) so so um, having like having followed the aria and hound relationship like do you feel like this is the right way for it to end like does all this make sense with what we've seen from them it all still feels hasty but um you know it's the best possible way in which uh click game bowl could have meant anything I think, mm-hmm. and I, I think in an ideal world with, with all this, uh, you know, as many episodes as we could have, 
Arya and the Hound would have been back on the road together, like, I don't know, a couple episodes before they got to King's Landing. So it wasn't just like, oh, hey, oh, hey, we killed the army of the dead. Let's go to King's Landing. Okay, I've learned something from you. Bye. Do you know, it just feels so fast. Um, Yeah, that's true for everything. Yes. I did like the reflection of... um, Arya says, you know, she calls him Sandor. She doesn't call him the Hound. Yeah. And she says, thank you, which is very similar to Bran saying, like, Theon, you're a good man. Thank you. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, can we also shout out uh, when the Clement game ball started, uh, Cersei just hustling down the stairs yes. to get past them. <laughs> which, if, again, <laughs> this is what I would do in this situation. Cersei is very relatable. If that had been a line reading, it would have been my line. But instead, it's like, yeah, I should have just been like the rustling of Cersei's footsteps down the stairs. <laughs> like, like, this has nothing to do with me. I'm out of here. But there are things about, and and like, I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on this, but there are things about this quote-unquote game bowl fight that feel like misplaced priorities for me. Because like, I don't mind that it happened, and I love the connection that they made to Arya. But, you know, they were talking a lot in the behind-the-scenes episodes how they wanted to make it look Epic is a word they use 900 times. Epic and post-apocalyptic. So they have this like blown out staircase and a dragon flying overhead and you see all of the prosthetics on, on, uh, the actor who plays the mountain and all this sort of stuff. And that, that, that and like, and the dive off the, you know, off the uh-huh. top into the fire. All of that to me feels completely unnecessary. Like have them fight. Sure. Does it need to be on like this massive staircase set that they've built and with all the CGI laid in and like all like I guess the actor who played the mountain was in like seven hours of prosthetics in order to like get ready. I was like, I don't I didn't need to see him with his clothes or his helmet off. Like oh, I didn't I kinda like that. You know? I like that it like yeah. revealed because he looked more human than I was expecting. I mm. kind of thought he would look more like a monster. Yeah. Um so I like the prosthetics of that. And I think my argument, like I I do think the the bigness of it, someone was tweeting that it looked like the um big lava fight at the end of Star Wars the third uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Prequel. Uh-huh. Um, but it is a nice contrast to Arya. Like the, the fact that they are up, up above the ground, there's all these things going on and Arya is like down in the dirt with people. So it makes that cross cutting more effective, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I also agree that like, you know, it might be excess for excess's sake. I just and think that they spend that money on ghosts. Yeah. Or like another episode of talking. Sure. Like I just think, I, I think that there's so much that's so good in this episode. Um, the, the craftspeople are at the top of their game. Miguel Sapochnik, the director, top of his game. So good in this. But then there's just like a lot of it that feels unnecessarily big when Game of Thrones is also so rewarding when it's small. And just, as you said, like the small focus in on that one woman and her, and her child trying to get through King's Landing is, is extremely valuable or focus in small on like Kit Harrington's face, which I thought he did a good job registering this like, oh no, of mm-hmm. it all. Or even um, like, even in when they have some big shots, like there's this one of Tyrion kind of walking through the big hole that's been blasted in the walls. Um, and it's a big shot, but there's a character to focus on in it. Um, I feel like they did a good job with that among the spectacle a lot. Okay. So one last thing before we just hit the Daenerys thing kind of hard, which is the, um, something that I thought was tremendously effective that they talked about a lot trying to create is this idea of like, are good guys becoming the bad guys. There's this yeah. great uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch. I don't know if you've seen it where David Mitchell, uh, they're, they're, they're dressed as like sort of, sort of Nazis, not quite Nazis or whatever, but like they have this conversation where they're like, are we the baddies? <laughs> they're like, they're, they're little, like their skulls on our, on our costume. Are we, are we the bad guys? <laughs> um, and that was just sort of like the whole, that's what, uh, that's John's conversation. With it's like, it's like Jon Snow. He's like, wait, yeah. wait a minute. Um, and, and Miguel Sebastian talked about how he shot the episode. Um, as a reflection of Battle of the Bastards, only this time Jon Snow was on like the other side of some of the same shots that he recreated. Oh, you that's know what cool. I mean? I'd yeah, like, I'd like really to see cool. some side by sides of that. Sorry, oh, I just assi- did I just assign you? Some, some I work? can do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think that that's kind of cool that they, you know, they they reverse that perspective. I think that's interesting and compelling. And um, I think for all the like weird character stuff that's happened, like Jon Snow maybe because he's a little bit of a dummy, he's a really consistent character. Like, you see him in this battle situation, he is responding exactly the way that you think he would, where he's trying not to fight, he's trying to help as he can, he's willing to defend himself, but is also kind of, like, you know, surprised by how this has turned out, which I I don't blame him. Like, I think I would be surprised, too. Um, So it's nice to kind of watch Jon Snow be who we know him to be. Yeah, I think that... um, 
the idea of Grey Worm, the Unsullied and the Dothraki going like ham on the city. Yeah. Um, was potentially very problematic. So they decided to have like the white northerners do it too. And in fact, like specifically have Jon Snow stop a white northern soldier from. Yeah. That part was doing a rape yeah um which is exactly what you want to do when the fire is raining down from the sky i guess and that it all felt a little much i mean i like on the one hand i'm like well i'm glad they did that so it wasn't just like the brown soldiers like using it and but at the same time i was just like yeah how do you come back from this and and where do you go from here which brings us to daenerys can i do one more thing before we get to daenerys of course Um, just shout out for my least favorite game of thrones character of all time euron Greyjoy, who uh his battle scene with Jamie was fine, but just the fact that he went out, uh, like trumpeting his own legacy as the guy who killed Jamie Lannister was hilarious and so on oh. brand. So if, if, I'm glad to get rid of him, but I was also glad he got one last moment for me to appreciate him. I got a, um, a gift request, uh, which is someone saying that I should mash up Yaron Greyjoy going, I'm the man who killed Jamie Lannister with Don Draper saying, I don't think about you at all. <laughs> <laughs> You mean my favorite Mad Men quote? It's such a good Mad Men quote. Right. That's really good. <laughs> um, all right. So Daenerys Targaryen. Um, yes. Katie, how are, what are you feeling around this? Did you feel prepared? Uh, do you feel shocked, dismayed, disinterested? How are you feeling about this big sort of cultural event, the turn of Daenerys Targaryen? So many feelings. Like I really have got, I feel like in the time, in the hour after the episode aired while I was like working with you and reading Twitter, like I went back and forth on this because I do agree that her decision to roast a bunch of very obviously innocent people and kind of like methodically go through the streets of King's Landing to kill people doesn't really track for me, especially because after I rewatched that scene of her on the dragon, you look at her and it looks for all the world like she is going to go torch the Red Keep with Cersei in it and kill her, which would have been overkill, but would have made sense. Like I totally can see the character doing that. It's like a good tactical move. Like it would have been kind of satisfying revenge for her. And then when she decides to turn instead to the streets, I just can't, I still can't, put myself there and the fact that we don't see shots of her doing this i think makes it even more difficult but i also think this is where her story had to go we follow her like really single-minded quest for revenge like we've seen as you've been pointing out like we've seen her make bad decisions and problematic decisions all along the way we know that she has a temper and we know that she can be you know so single-minded for the throne that she you know gets in her own way um, and I think we had to really suffer from her arriving in King's Landing. I don't think it could have been a clean victory. So I get why they had to get us there. Um, I just wish they'd done it in a more logical way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, I think time is once again, uh, an issue here. And also, yeah, this idea of placing a premium on shock. I don't know. I, I just feel like going back through all the quotes in the books that, you know, previewed this madness in Daenerys, I think it's really clear that should George ever publish another book, George R. R. Martin, this will feel more earned on the page than it does on the screen. Yeah. And I don't even know if like, I don't think Amelia Clark knew that this is where her character was heading. Uh, and so I don't think that Amelia Clark was given the opportunity to lace some of this into her earlier performance, you know, and some of this being like a penchant for madness or vengeance or some, somewhere along that. It's not, it's not like, you know, there's plenty of instances in the show where Daenerys is like, I'll take what is mine with fire and blood. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that these are things that she said. And so people, you know, last night and, and Monday morning were like, Oh, you dummy was there the whole time. How could you not see it? I mean, that's like, that's not very useful to sort of bludgeon people with that. But, uh, you know, they're not wrong that, that I think anyone rewatching this show will be able to see the clues from the get go. Mm-hmm. From from the way she watched her brother die, even you know what I mean. This just Where she like was kind of dispassionate about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But this um, paranoia in her, um, mm-hmm. and I and I hesitate to call that that, uh, that because like a lot of this is centered on like emotions and female emotions and is a woman too emotional to rule and stuff like that. Like it's all sort of cooked together in a messy messy sure. pot. But, and also, like, people were scheming against her. She wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong, but, but in the books, she's more paranoid as Ares, uh, her father was very paranoid. And in this episode, she wasn't wrong, but when she was like, um, she's like, 
Tyrion and John were sticking by her, right? Mm-hmm. And Varys was plotting against her, and Varys tried to get them to plot against her, and they were like, no, we're with her. And Sansa doesn't have her best interest at heart, but is not That's, plotting against her. Right. And so, like, you know, if she had believed them, which, like, maybe she has no cause to, but if she had believed them, then maybe all of this wouldn't have happened. But she was like, you know, it's, it's a great scene. And I mean, like, Clark plays it so well that Tyrion comes in and she, you know, she's like, someone's betrayed me. Jon Snow, you, Varys, okay, because of what a Sansa said. You know, like, it's just, it's enemies everywhere. Enemies yeah. all around her. Like, all of her friends are dead. Jorah's dead. Missandei's dead. Uh, her dragons are, two of her dragons are dead. You know what I mean? Like, she has no one. And this is like, this is part of something that the show has done to isolate her. Um, and, I understand, but it just feels so fast. Yeah. You know, it feels so fast. So, and then, and then like, let's get into the gender question of it. Like, like what, um, what does George R. R. Martin plotting this out, you know, in the early nineties, long before we litigated like Clinton versus Trump in the, in the discourse or whatever, what does George R. R. Martin owe? What do Weiss and Benioff owe our modern conversation about especially in America about women in power and emotions and all of that, uh, when they're telling this story. Oh God, it's such a, so it, it's a complicated question in part to the credit of the show that there has been a lot of women in power on this show. Like we've had Cersei, we've had Daenerys, we have Sansa, we have Arya, we had Marjorie in earlier seasons and Elena, like there's been a lot of different versions of it. And I think we've talked about how as the series has gone on, it's gotten kind of boiled down to Cersei's crazy and bad. Daenerys is crazy and was good, but is now bad. Like Sansa, you know, she thinks her rapist last week. It gets complicated there. Um, and I think it's, I, I feel like it's going to end in a complex way. Maybe this has been giving the show too much credit. I don't think, and you know, I'm speculating having, you know, basically very little information about what's coming. Um, like, I don't think it's going to be as easy as Jon Snow takes the throne as the just and good leader, like what Varys was trying to do. I think the, I think the show is more complicated than that. And I think they're too aware that having, the the man replaced the crazy woman is is toxic and also like not the interesting result of these st- stories you've seen build up do you do you yeah. not have the same faith no i agree with you i think i think to have john just take the throne instead would be a very disappointing ending well he doesn't want it like it would be out of character for him to do it well there's this interesting conversation i'm curious what you think about it about both this story and to a certain extent, and I, I've written about it a little bit, but not extensively. And also, um, Captain America and the Marvel movies, this idea of like the best person to lead is someone who doesn't want to lead, who's mm-hmm. like a reluctant leader, a reluctant hero. That's your Jon Snows and your Steve Rogerses. Um, like what does that teach us watching? about political ambition? And is that the correct thing to teach us about? It? Like, is it wrong? to want to be president of the United States. And it is like, was Trump rewarded? Sorry to bring up Trump. I don't like talking about it that much, but like, (laughs) was Trump rewarded for treating it like treating the presidency like a joke and something like the, the main line around Trump when he was running was like, Oh, he doesn't really want it. He's just doing this to like advance his, like, you know, his business and he doesn't actually want to be president. Sure. And then Hillary's biggest, one of Hillary's biggest sins is that she actually wanted to be president. And so this question of like, do we immediately see anyone who wants the presidency, who wants the throne, who wants to rule, to lead as inherently flawed or evil or grasping or ambitious? And is that like amplified, to a million degree when that person's a woman. Yeah. I mean, I think if you were to ask maybe the show creators, they would say that's what the show is about is that pursuit of the throne is inherently toxic. And that for like, it has destroyed people, men and women, the entire time we've been watching the show, it destroys Stannis and Renly and Cersei and everyone else. Um, and Daenerys is kind of the most like obvious example of that in the front. And the fact that it is now a man who doesn't want it, who's like, kind of there to pick up the pieces. But I wonder about Sansa. Like Sansa didn't really aspire to power, but she's kind of learned to want it. Like, do you feel like if it ends with maybe the, the Gollum comparison that you laid out in a post last week about how, you know, pursuit of the throne is like pursuit of the ring and it destroys everybody. If it ends like that and Daenerys is, I think it now seems inevitable that she will be somehow destroyed or, you know, she's not going to get to take power the way she wanted to. Um, but if Sansa has power in the North and a, a different kind of power, like is, will that kind of counterbalance what feels like a gendered read of this. It's challenging to me. My, my Sansa feelings are so complicated by the fact that she is like very much a Weiss and Benioff creation. 
Yeah, because and in the book, she's just not nearly as big a figure. She's more of a Marjorie figure. And I really yeah. like that depiction of Marjorie as like a, a person who uses power differently. Mm-hmm. And instead, they've made Sansa a like little figure Cersei hybrid with with some like rigid morality of the North in her. You know yeah. what I mean? And so, um, but but what bothers I think, and it really hit me in this episode. What bothers me about Sansa is she's a, she's a Weiss and Benioff creation in in the way that they've crafted her character, and she's always right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That bothers me. It bothers me that they have like a sort of an avatar in this show who is always right. Cause she's right about Daenerys now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, but is she because like something that they said in the behind the scenes a lot is like, if Cersei hadn't done this and Sansa hadn't done this and John hadn't done this and Tyrion hadn't done this, this would have not have happened to Daenerys. And sure. like, you know, there's, there's ways in which I agree with like, if Sansa had been more like, let's work together with Daenerys would we be here? And like, Mm -hmm. what, what frustrates me is then we've got these three women in positions of power. So it's like the shot, the shot of Daenerys snapping. She hears the bells, which is still Mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know why this episode is called the bells, but when she hears the bells and she snaps and she gives that great face, it is immediately reflected in Cersei's face looking out of the red keep so like they're trying to draw this strong parallel between these two women and this emotions and the devastation of their power and stuff like that and then when you add Sansa to the mix and Sansa who where which is where Daenerys is placing a lot of blame yeah on everything that's happening she's like it's all because Sansa's been your sister's been maneuvering against me then it's like these three women sort of like sniping at each other and then you've got poor hapless John who just doesn't you know, just wants everyone to get along. That's and it's, a, and it's uh, three women making emotional decisions. Like I'm not sure yeah. sure Sansa is. Like she seems pretty level headed, being like the North has always been independent. Like we don't want to bend the knee. This is like there's like very logical reasons to be suspicious here. But I think that the power of Daenerys's arc would be a lot greater and would feel a lot less fraught if it had been her burning King's Landing, but having like feeling like it was the right thing to do tactically or feeling like there was something other than rage driving her. Like the idea of someone just snapping and especially a woman in power just snapping, that's where it gets really complicated. And there are a lot of other ways you could have gotten to this point where she had done something horrible, um, but it was somehow in the service of what she thought was leadership. And I think that there are um, examples of this in the show. Like I would argue if you watch Blackwater, Tyrion is, uh, the season two episode Blackwater, Tyrion Lannister is defending the city, but he uses a weapon of mass destruction, which is wildfire on the boats, uh, in the Blackwater Bay. Now, granted, there are no women and children on those boats, as far as we know. You know what I mean? And that seems mm-hmm. to be sort of the, the line crossing, uh, incident, but like he used fire, this sort of like weapon of mass destruction sort of thing to do what he thought was right. Similarly, you've got Stannis doing this like crazy line crossing thing he does by burning his daughter because he believes it's right. The, it's yeah. the only way he's going to win. And he believes in his heart of hearts that he is the person that should run the kingdom and it is like it's a somewhat emotional performance but it's I mean, it's also an emotion less it's like i need to shut my emotions off in order to do what i think i believe is right I'm, he was wrong but it's what he thought he needed to do yeah for for daenerys to just have this like emotional flip that is also connected in the script to Jon snow's like romantic and sexual rejection of her is is tough it's a tough like it's a tough thing to to watch for a lot of women especially women who have built Daenerys up as this like you know figure of survival uh and survival uh, like after sexual assault or being treated as chattel or something like that you know like raise her up as this symbol of something for for women for a lot of people watching the show and then just sort of unravel that so quickly is is really tough yeah, and I think it is the, it is a tribute to the show that they were never going to have Daenerys be that easy. And I don't think they ever have. Like, I don't think she's always been, she's ever been like a uncomplicated, um, symbol of rising above oppression. Maybe even in the way that Jon Snow is, where he, you know, was the bastard of Winterfell who right. becomes a king. Like, that's a lot less complicated arc. And I, and I appreciate that they want Daenerys to be complicated in that way. But maybe like, if, if her hero complex and her idea of being a savior has been, has been brought up for time and time again in the show but i feel like it's been really absent this season and i think that might have helped get us there too like the idea that she is powerful and right and like has a good plan but also has this like you know idea that everything is entitled to her 
um, that is going to lead her astray. Yeah. Oh, it's so complicated. It's very complicated. We'll see how it all, I mean, like, as of right now, right, Daenerys has won, uh, is the yeah. queen of the ashes. But, but do you think that that, do you think that it's right that like her victory had to be Pyrrhic this way? Like it couldn't have gone successfully based on what the themes of the show are about like whether or not vengeance is the right thing. Well, I think this, the, the, I mean, that's the thing is like Daenerys's pursuit of the throne is so odd. And, um, because it is, it ha, it is rooted in vengeance. The same way that Oberyn Martell's fall was rooted in vengeance. The same way that Sandor's fall is rooted in vengeance, right? It's like, her, this was taken from her family and she wants it back. Mm-hmm. But while it's easy to sympathize with what Daenerys was doing in Essos in terms of like freeing slaves and like doing, doing good with her dragons, uh, in theory, uh, in, if not in practice, um, it's a hard to sympathize with her once she gets to Westeros. Cause you're like, why do you need all seven kingdoms? Why do you need the North? Like, yeah. why? Like, what, what is the, like, political ambition is one thing. And like, I think it's, it's great for her to want to get rid of Cersei. But like, when Sansa's like, okay, can the North be independent? And she's like, hell no. And you're like, well, why? You yeah. know? And so it's not just ambition. It's like, that's not just like, I want to get rid of tyrants and liberate the world, which is like her, her, uh, campaign promise, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Daenerys. Uh, I will rid the world, world of tyrants. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a power grasping thing. And that is something probably we would maybe not second guess in a man that we are second guessing more in a woman, but it is hard to view her in the same way we did when she was in Essos and she was just this liberator, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you're right. And I think, I think the, this idea of like, I mean, I got way too far up my own Lord of the Rings loving, um, self when I wrote this piece last week, um, that you helped me with on how I think the Iron Throne is basically the ring of power. But that's something that literally had not occurred to me. Like, I don't know why it had never occurred to me. And I'm sure it had occurred to someone, but it never occurred to me that the iron, that anyone seeking the Iron Throne, that the Iron Throne itself is corrupt. Mm hmm. It is forged from the blade of Aegon's enemies. He made a chair out of swords. He took the continent in the first place with fire and blood. The fact that it's just drenched in violence. Like, that's what it is. It's a seat of violence and power. And it is inherently, like, corrupting and corrupt. And so I, I just, I think that's kind of brilliant because the question has always been, who, who's, who's gonna win the Game of Thrones? Who's gonna, um, end the series sitting on the Iron Throne? What is it all gonna, like, you know, who's going to win the throne? Yeah. And I love this idea as we're at the end of it is like, that's the wrong question. <laughs> and you've been saying that since the beginning of the season, even before this, the Lord of the Rings idea occurred to you, that like, the, the, the question is not who will have the throne, it's like, will the throne exist? Yeah, but I thought that had to do with the Army of the Dead, so let's not give me too much credit. <laughs> I was like, you're focusing on the wrong fight. The fight is with the Night King, and then episode three, I was like, well... Uh. But I do, anyway, think, I do yeah. think there's a pretty decent chance the Iron Throne won't exist by the end of the next week's episode. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I've been hoping for, like many years uh as have many people that it will just be a puddle there's there's a mm-hmm. there's a fiery dragon about i think i think the iron throne will end up a puddle and we'll get to start something new that that would be my hope um but it's <sighs> too late it, i would say it's too late for daenerys uh no matter yeah what, i so. think no yeah i think this episode made it clear and you wrote a, you wrote a post about john kind of witnessing the wildfire breaking out and like seeing the connection of targaryen history because presumably john knows about the wildfire from the original battle um that he and the other survivors are going to have to figure out what to do with this queen who um has made a pretty horrible decision based on motivations that we maybe wish had been otherwise depicted Katie, I'm so grateful to have you here. To, <laughs> this to, is fun like, to, to go through all of this with me at the end. And you did a great, like you were, you named off Renly Baratheon. You're <laughs> definitely Game of Thrones. Fluid. Oh, don't remind me of when he was still on the show and it would cut to Renly and be like, hang on, is he Jon Snow or is he Rob Stark or is he the other one? We've grown so much since then. Oh, um, <laughs> all right. So we will be back next week to talk about the finale and all of our feelings about it. <sighs> Until then, Kitty Rich, where can people find you? Oh, man. I'm tweeting and I'm editing at fanfare.com. And uh, I'm not on this week's Local Men podcast, but normally you can find both of us on there. But uh, this week it's a Tony special. So listen to that. Yes. Or if you want to 
hear Katie talk about other things you can hear on the great podcast Finding the War Room. Oh my god, yes. You. Thank you. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, you can, and you're at Katie Rich on Twitter, right? Yes, K-A-T-E-Y-R-Z. Perfect. You want all of Katie's hot takes after the finale. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find me on VanityFerret.com. You can listen to us next week, I guess, on Little Gold Men. And we will see you for the finale. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.